Thank you to our music team. Children can be dismissed at this time for children's ministry. And let me ask you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, we've had a couple of weeks off. And so I'm eager to get back to it, and I, I hope that you are as well. This morning, our passage will be Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. But in order to understand where we're at, we're at a really crucial point in the gospel according to Mark. Uh, We are just before Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And yet we're in the context of several different stories, several different scenarios that deal with the subject of sight. And specifically the subject of the lack of the disciples' sight. And so we have in the middle of that uh, an account, a healing, that only Mark tells us about, an account that seems most unusual to us, but an account that's placed specifically here for a certain reason in order to sort of give the the disciples a parable that though they don't yet see, if they continue to follow Jesus, they will eventually see, though it will be by a progress. So I want to read then in Mark chapter 8, verses 14, all the way through verse 33. But again, we'll look at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. So if you will, please follow along as I read Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand... How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him, home to, he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. May God bless his word to our hearts today. Let's pray and ask for his help. Oh God, what a gift your word is to us. And just as we have thought about previously when Bob read to us 1 Corinthians 2, what a gift your spirit is to us. Apart from your spirit, we would be just like the blind disciples who don't understand anything. And then the moment they begin to understand something, they still misunderstand. Lord, we ask that you would help us to not be like the blind disciples. We pray that the person or the people who are here today and who who have never yet realized who you are, that you yourself would open their blind eyes to the reality that you are the Christ, but not the Christ who came first to conquer, the Christ who came first to suffer, to die, and to rise again. Lord, let us all see the reality of our need for you. We pray, Lord, that you would take your word and you would plant its seed into our hearts. And we ask that you would protect it and cause it to grow so that it might bear fruit so that you would receive glory. Lord, we believe what you say, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It must have been a strange moment for the disciples that day. What they saw from Jesus, they had never seen before. In fact, no one had ever seen anything like that before. They entered a town just as they had done so many other times. They were met by a group of people who brought their friend who needed healing, just like every other time that they had experienced. And yet this time, It took two touches from Jesus in order to fully heal this man. You can imagine standing around watching this, seeing that for the very first time after you had already seen countless miracles by Jesus. Demons being cast out by the command of his voice immediately. A blind man or a deaf man being able to hear and having his tongue loosed at the touch of Jesus. A little girl who had just died being raised up with just one touch from Jesus. A man who had been paralyzed for a long, long time, lowered down through the roof by his friends, and yet raised up by Jesus by one touch. A man with a withered hand, who by the command of Jesus stretched out his hand, and it was just one command from Jesus. But now, as Jesus encounters this blind man, it takes not one, but two touches from Jesus. While it was an ordinary day for Jesus and his disciples, just another town, just another healing, it was most certainly an extraordinary moment for the disciples. What could it mean? 
while they were there on the boat together just before this event in chapter 8, verses 14 to 21, Jesus had warned his disciples to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus had confronted them about their blindness and their deafness and their lack of understanding. And now, conveniently, right after that event, they meet a blind man. A blind man whom Jesus heals in the most unusual way in the entirety of his ministry. In fact, as I said, Mark is the only one who tells us this story. It's the one of two or one of three events that involves the spit of Jesus, though this time the spit is directly on the eyes of the man. And it is the absolute only time that it seems, seems, to have taken Jesus two times to be able to heal the man. It's the only time that Jesus, rather than give an authoritative command after the healing, asked an interrogative question, do you see anything? Surely this unusual moment was meant to teach the disciples a necessary lesson. In the boat, Jesus had been dealing with a group of disciples who can't see, and now they meet a man who also can't see. While their blindness was spiritual, this man's blindness is physical, yet it serves to give the disciples and to give the readers an illustration That if the disciples were to continually, faithfully following Jesus, then eventually he would open their blind eyes just like he opened the blind eyes of this man. In stages, by progress. Yet this man's healing, as we observe it, as the disciples looked on it, didn't happen at the very first moment. It happened in two stages. Two stages that illustrated to the disciples and two stages that teach us something about the nature of the disciples' relationship to Jesus Christ and his ministry. Right after this healing, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He finally gets it. Yet, After that very first touch from Jesus, Peter's vision is still blurry. He understands and recognizes the identity of Jesus, but he does not understand the ministry of Jesus. He recognizes who Jesus is, but then after Jesus begins to demonstrate or to, to explain to them what his mission was, Peter attempts to rebuke Jesus, to rebuke the man who can walk on water, to rebuke the man who can speak to a storm and all of a sudden it's calm. And so Jesus then turns to rebuke Peter, which demonstrates to us that although Peter can recognize the identity of Jesus, he does not yet understand clearly. He doesn't see clearly. As soon as Jesus began to teach his disciples about his death and resurrection, they had no category whatsoever for a Messiah, for a Christ, who would have to suffer. Peter thought, just like everyone else in Israel thought, that the Messiah, when he came, the Christ, when he came, would be a political leader. 
a ruler, a hero for the people in a physical way. One that would cast off the chains of the Roman Empire and put Israel back on top of the world to be the world's superpower once again. Peter's understanding of the Christ was that he would come back to restore the glory days of Israel's past. And the disciples' confusion is illustrated for us in the question that they asked him just before his ascension back to heaven. In Acts 1.6, they said to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they still didn't see very clearly. Peter and the rest of the disciples were so focused on this world and on the things of this world, political power, nations, things, that they could not see the will of God and they could not see the kingdom of God. But isn't Jesus so good, so faithful to keep walking with them? So even after Peter's great confession of the identity of Jesus, the confession that Matthew 16 tells us is the very foundation for the entire church, that Jesus is the Christ. Even after that great confession, he still didn't see Jesus clearly. He knew that Jesus was the Christ, but he didn't actually know what the Christ has come to do. And I can't help but wonder if there's someone here today who has that very same problem. You've recognized the identity of Jesus. You perhaps have even recognized the reality that Jesus has died for your sins, but you don't understand the ministry of Jesus. Do you know the identity of Jesus yet fail to understand specifically and exactly what it is that Jesus came to do first and foremost? To loose the chains of sin that so gripped your heart? Do you desire Jesus so that you can get what you want from him? Rather than understanding that the only way you can actually live is through him? Peter wanted a conquering king who would eradicate Israel's enemies and make them the greatest nation in the world just as they were in the days of King David. When you think about Jesus, do you think of him as a powerful king who can give you whatever you want? As long as you rub the lamp of prayer every once in a while? Or do you think of him as a gracious savior who has paid for your sins? There's a lot of confusion about Jesus, isn't there? My friend, make sure here today that you are not confused. Let the word of God by the spirit of God inform your thinking so that you stop thinking of Jesus in your own categories And you start thinking of Jesus the way that he so clearly holds himself out to you to know.
in order to make sure that we're not confused then this morning, we're going to work through, through this particular passage, Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. And as we work through this passage, we're going to see what the disciples were, uh, what the disciples saw in front of them and by way of this miracle and what they were really supposed to see that they didn't see at the time. And yet as they looked back on this, as, as Peter told Mark what to write down in his gospel, Peter certainly, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and after the filling of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost when Peter finally saw everything clearly, he certainly saw this clearly. And this is exactly what God wants you to see clearly today. So I think it's most helpful then if we sort of walk through the passage and get a big understanding of it. We make sure we interpret it correctly. But then also at the end of that time, we will point out three different lessons, three lessons that are necessary for every disciple to understand. Lessons that are probably not necessarily new to you, but lessons that if you are not careful, if you are not illuminated by the Spirit of God, if you do not have the mind of Christ to understand the things of God, lessons, lessons that you'll hear, but you won't hear. A Jesus that you'll see, but you won't see. And so let's walk through this passage then together before we then unfold some of those lessons. First of all, we have sort of a normal healing situation, and in fact, it's a, it's a very similar parallel Back to chapter 7, verses 31 to 37, when Jesus opened the ears of the man who was deaf and loosened the tongue of that very same man and gave him the ability to hear and the ability to speak. And if you were with us, you remember that I explained that that's an illustration of the disciples as well. That unless Jesus touches you, unless he opens your ears, you'll not be able to hear. And unless you hear the truth about who he is and he loosens your tongue to speak of him in in his fullness, the fullness of his ministry, not just that he's the son of God, but it's the son of God that came to be the propitiation for the sins of his people, the one who would die for the sins of his people, the one who left his people, a ministry of suffering, a road to walk down, which is paved by suffering, which is Peter says, normal for the Christian. And so in verse 22, then, we see the man's problem, this this blind man's problem, and his need. It says, they came to Bethsaida, that is, Jesus and the disciples, and so people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. There's nothing really out of the ordinary here. It's another town, the town that they had intended to go to a while back, but the wind diverted them from this town, but now they come to this town. And it seems that either they saw Jesus and and knew already what he looked like, or someone had seen him coming and spread the word through town, but, but some friends hear about Jesus' coming, and they grab their friend who, who can't see and they say, come with us, we're going, to, we're going to take you to Jesus. It's interesting, and I don't know if Mark is doing this intentionally, or if perhaps there was some, some interest in the life of this man. Mark doesn't really tell us a whole lot about the blind man, except that he's blind, and that he gained his sight in progressive stages, and he answered Jesus' question. 
Perhaps the man had no faith and the second touch was to restore more faith to the man or perhaps the man had no idea what was going on and he was just following his friends. But we have here an example of what evangelism looks like, don't we? Friends bring friends to Jesus. Isn't this the role of the Christian today? Those who who can't see Jesus, those who have no idea of their need for Jesus, we befriend them and we say, hey, I know someone you need to meet. We bring them to Jesus by prayer. Lord Jesus, open their eyes because you're the only one who can do that. And we bring them to Jesus as we tell them about him. And so this man had some good friends and his good friends brought brought him to Jesus And then in verses 23 to 25, we see this extraordinary healing, a healing that is one of a kind in the ministry of Jesus Christ. They begged him, Jesus, to touch the man, just as the the friends of the deaf man had done. And Jesus then, verse 23, takes the blind man by the hand and leads him out of the village. There's something sweet Anytime we read that Jesus takes anyone by the hand. But there's something that much more sweet when we read that Jesus takes a blind man by the hand. In our church we served at, and we were members of in Arizona before coming here, there was a a dear, dear couple. This man is now in the presence of the Lord. He died just a few months ago. A dear couple who had been blind for many, many years and raised many, many children without any vision whatsoever. His name was Larry. His name still is Larry, but I don't know his new name that the Lord's given him in heaven. So, His name's Larry. And one day during worship, we were singing, I think it was the last song. And we met in a school, a high school theater, and so the theater was, had this crazy slope. I don't know what the degree was, but it was like once you got to the top, there were oxygen tanks that you could get... Not really, but it was a crazy slope. And Larry, because he's climbed trees by himself, he's cut down trees with chainsaws by himself without any vision. Larry, Larry knew how to get it done. So Larry was climbing up the, the slope. And I knew, I assumed that I knew he was probably trying to make it to the restroom. And so I was on the end and I said, Larry, can I help you? And he said, sure. And so what I did then was taken by the hand. Because he knew generally where he was going and he did have a cane that he could sort of feel it out, though, though Larry was a go-getter. He was, he was going to do it on his own. And I took him by the hand and it was one of the sweetest moments of my life to think about, I, just, I get to help him. Jesus takes this man who, whom he knew needed help He needed his friends to get him there, and he also needed Jesus to lead him out of the village. Perhaps Jesus led him out of the village because he pronounced a judgment on Bethsaida for its its unbelief, and, and perhaps he was not going to do any miracles inside of the village anymore. Or I think more likely it was that Jesus wanted to give this man some privacy. Jesus, in this section of the gospel according to Mark, is specifically focused on teaching his disciples now. So they go to a place outside of the village where they can get some privacy. And then Jesus 
apparently stops and possibly lets go of the man's hand or either way turns directly toward the man and then spits on the man's eyes and lays his hands on the man's eyes. And all kinds of ink has been spilled to explain why Jesus spit on the man's eyes, but the reality is we don't know why Jesus spit on the man's eyes. It's true in those days, spit was seen to have medicinal powers, and so there were all kinds of sort of home remedies where you could mix spit with rooster blood and then apply it to the eyes of the blind person, and that was supposed to be, you know, healing. It's kind of like the ancient version of... uh, Essential oils, that kind of thing. Yeah. They smell good. They smell good. They had all of these different things. And in fact, one, one story tells about one of the Caesars, Vespasian, being asked to, to spit on a blind man because it was seen that Caesar was a god and Caesar's spit had divine power. And so he spit on the man. And it was this whole show about how the man was supposedly healed, but of course he wasn't. Perhaps it was because it was tactile. The man couldn't see, but he could feel something wet. And he could feel the hands of Jesus on his eyes. So Jesus spits on him and he touches his eyes. And then Jesus does something that he does not do in any other miracle recorded for us. He asks the man a question. Do you see anything? Now, do you think that Jesus knew the answer to that question? I mean, he made everything. He knows the answer to that question. But he asked the man the question anyway, do you see anything? It wasn't as though Jesus maybe didn't eat his Wheaties that morning. His power meter was a little bit lower, and so he wasn't able to do things the way that he had always done things. It certainly was not that. It was because Jesus was teaching his disciples some lessons here. It would have been shocking, wouldn't it, to hear Jesus ask a question? I mean, I would have loved to have just kind of been around to hear the whispers of the disciples. Did you see that? He just spit on him. I know, that's crazy. What, he asked him a question? Like, what, the, the man can't see? Like, has this ever happened? He asked him a question. Do you see anything? And the man responds, but but notice in verse 24, what Mark highlights for us is the very first way in which the man responds. And he looked up and said. Now that word looked up should probably more be translated and he regained sight. When it's used in the context of blindness, that's what it means. His eyes were open, he regained sight. But you think about it, even if we do take it as looked up, if you're blind, can you look at anything? You might be able to lift your head up, but the man opens his eye. He can see, he looks up, but he says that his vision is not quite clear. He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And you can imagine what that would look like. Maybe if you were to squint your eyes really, really hard on a bright sunny day, you could make out the the object, the shape of people, but you would see them as sort of these tall, slender things that would resemble trees. Trees stand straight up and people stand straight up. And so the point here is that the man sees, but he doesn't see clearly. Kind of like when Peter says, you are the Christ. And then when he hears about Jesus having to suffer and die, he says, no way, Lord. 
That's not what the Christ came to do. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking about the things of the world. You're not thinking about the things of my father. And so the man's vision is restored, but it's not quite clear yet. Verse 25 says, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, a second touch. And this time, Mark gives us three verbs that describe how clear this man's sight has become. First of all, he opens his eyes, or really he opens his eyes wide. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. From no vision to 2020 vision, or whatever's better than that. The man was now seeing in 4K, high def, or whatever the fancy TVs have now. He could see everything, and he could see it clearly. The man had opened, uh, the man could see Jesus had restored him, but it took two different touches. And then in verse 26, we have what so often happens in the ministry of Jesus, and what even happens After Peter's confession of Jesus, don't tell anybody about this. Verse 26 says, and he sent him home to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Again, Jesus wants to keep it secret because he didn't come primarily to be a healer. He came primarily to be the sacrifice for sins. There is healing in his wings, no doubt. And sometimes By his grace, he gives that healing right here and right now. But the ultimate healing will come in the new heavens and the new earth. The ultimate healing will come in your new resurrection body, a body that will never again feel the effects of sin. That's why Christians talk about the hope that we have. That's why we can look forward to the future, no matter how dark and bleak it might be. Because the reality is, for us, this is as bad as it will ever get. Blind people will see Jesus face to face in glory. Deaf people will hear the sweet words of Jesus. They will hear how much he loves them in glory. Lame people will be able to run to worship together. It will be a beautiful and glorious time. And it's all because of who Jesus is. The very son of God who has come to make all things new. And so what lessons can we learn then from this particular passage, this unusual miracle? Well, first of all, I think that we can learn the lesson from this blind man that his problem is our problem. His problem is our problem. Now, his problem was a physical problem, and we don't have that same physical problem. But his physical problem serves to illustrate a spiritual problem. He was physically blind, and it was symbolic of the disciples' blindness. Look back to verse 18 of chapter 8. Jesus questions the disciples He says, having eyes, do you not see? So there's a theme running through here, a theme of blindness, a theme of deafness, a theme of a lack of understanding. And who stands at the center of that? 
Who is the only one that can reveal the reality of real sight and real hearing and real understanding? It's Jesus. But as the disciples would later understand, it's not Jesus the healer so much as it is Jesus the Messiah who came to pay the penalty for his people's sins. It was only after the death, resurrection, and filling of the Spirit that the disciples would have the second touch from Jesus and then clearly see everything. And what happened when they clearly saw everything? They rocked the world. And here we are. Because God in his infinite grace allowed 11 men to see clearly. And therefore to preach clearly. Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. It's no coincidence that Jesus confronts the disciples' blindness. And then he meets a blind man and he heals his blindness. It's no coincidence also that it took two touches. It's, it's a parable of sorts for the disciples to be able to pay attention to and for us to be able to notice as well. The disciples knew that there was something about Jesus. That's why they followed him. I mean, if someone came to your work, and maybe you've heard of them before, but they showed up at your office, at your desk perhaps, and they said, hey, stop what you're doing, put everything down, follow me. Would you do it? You'd say, uh, sorry, buddy, I'm calling security. You're a lunatic. But when Jesus showed up at their work and said, follow me, what did they do? They did it. They gave up everything, their careers, and they followed him. And so Jesus has been showing them that they can trust him to provide for them. They didn't really need their careers. Now, that's not to say that you don't need your careers. Their situation is different than our situation, okay? But Jesus was showing them that they could fully count on him and depend on him. But they wouldn't get it until that second touch. It would be only as the Father reveals the identity of Jesus to them that they would receive their first touch from Jesus. When Peter says, you're the Christ. And then it would be after the death, resurrection, ascension, and then the sending of the Holy Spirit that they would receive that second touch from Jesus. And Peter, the man who denied Jesus three times, would stand before thousands of people and tell them, you just killed your Messiah. Repent and believe in him. And 3,000 of them would answer that call. Why? Because Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, opened their eyes to see the truth of the gospel. You see, their problem is our problem. We are, by our nature, blind to God. And what is it that makes us blind? It's not our lack of understanding. It's not our lack of seeing. It's not our lack of hearing. It's worse than that. It's our sin. It's your sin. In Acts 26, 18 Paul is giving a testimony of the ministry that Jesus gave to him and the very words that Jesus told him. Jesus told him why he was sending him to the disciples. And there Jesus says to him, I am sending you to open their eyes 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What needs to happen for a person to see Jesus rightly? Jesus has to open their eyes. You see, coming to Jesus Christ is not a matter of figuring out which option is best. I've tried Islam. I've tried New Age spiritualism. I've tried Buddhism. I've tried atheism. I've tried selfism. I've tried alcohol. I've tried drugs. I've tried everything. And you know what? It just seems to make sense that Jesus is the way. So I'm going to go with that one. No. No. Jesus has to open your eyes because the reality of a savior who came to conquer by dying makes no sense to the human mind. There's a reason why superheroes win and don't die. Now I know there's all kinds of other stories where they do die, but eventually they come back or someone takes their place. Because we understand that death is symbolic of something that is the end. But not so for the Son of God. His death was the beginning of the redemption of his people. Because when he died, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And Peter tells us that because he rose, we who trust in him have a living hope We have a living Savior and a living hope, and we walk in the light of that living hope. But you only realize that, you only know that, if God meets you in your sinful, blind condition and opens your eyes, and now you see. Paul understood this. He never forgot this lesson. He tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's the condition of the unbeliever. Darkened in their understanding. They can't see. And they're cut off from the life of God. No matter how much they want to consider themselves a child of God, after all, isn't that the the new age chant? We're all God's children. We can all just get along. God may have made us all, but his children are only those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. He tells the Ephesians later in chapter 5, verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see, this theme of darkness and light runs all throughout the scriptures to explain that our natural condition is blindness because of our sin. He tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there's a sort of double blindness. Your own sin blinds you, and Satan blinds you on top of it. So then not only is is his problem our problem, but then secondly, his need is our need. 
If you understand the problem, then you understand what the need is, don't you? The need is this blind man's need. He needed Jesus to touch him and open his eyes. And that's what we need. That's what you need. His friends knew that he needed the touch of Jesus, and so they took him. This is exactly the very same thing that we need, the touch of Jesus. I read to you 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Now listen to verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So just as God spoke creation into being with his voice, he speaks new creation into being in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus Christ. So my friend, can you see? Do you see anything? This is the most important question you could ever be asked. It depends not upon your church attendance. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. There is nothing, nothing you can do to ever save yourself. Have you been touched by Jesus? Has God opened the eyes of your heart to truly understand who Jesus Christ is? And now you see. You get it. You see the disgustingness of your sin. And in fact, you still see the way that your sin pervades your life even as a Christian. And you hate it. But at the same time, even as you are in the bottom of that pit, you're transported to the heights of glory because you know that Jesus paid it all. You know that if it were left to you, you would be wallowing in the depravity of your human nature. Your sin would be so much worse than you could ever imagine it to be. You would run headlong with every wind of doctrine, every new fad that comes along. Be whoever you want to be. It's up to you. You're autonomous. You would be there too if it weren't for God opening your eyes. So has he? Don't leave here today without making sure that you can say, by God's grace, he has opened my eyes. I believe in Jesus Christ. How does that, how does that opening of the eyes happen? How did it happen for the man? It has to happen at the touch of Jesus Christ, right? It doesn't happen because the blind man said, I've got a good idea today. I'm going to go out and meet Jesus. And I'm going to ask him to touch me. And because I asked him, and he's a nice guy, he's just going to do it for me. It happens because some friends who, it, who must have had some faith said, hey, let's go. We're taking you to meet someone. And it's initiated by Jesus Christ. There's nothing you could do to open your eyes. But the good news is, you don't even have to try. 
because Jesus paid it all. What do we sing? I was blind, but now I see. And it's because of amazing grace. So this man's need is our need. And then finally, his progress is our pattern. His progress is our pattern. It took two touches to illustrate to the disciples that although they would see partially, they would need to keep walking with Jesus so that one day by his touch, they would see completely and see clearly. They went from being blind in verse 18 of chapter 8 to partially seeing in verse 29 when Peter says, you are the Christ, to, to very quickly making it clear that their sight was not clear because when Jesus talked about suffering, they had no category for a suffering Messiah, but only a Messiah that would only ever give them good things. Jesus is the king. He's restoring Israel. We're going to be back to the glory days. We're going to not have any needs anymore. Nothing's ever going to go wrong anymore because the Messiah's here. And Jesus wakes him up pretty quickly. No, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. Isn't that so often the, the view of Christianity that is taken? And I think if you're honest, you'll find that that view sometimes lurks its head in your own heart as well. Something happens in your life, something bad. And where's your thought, where's your mind tempted to go? Why, God? Why are you doing this to me, God? Now, as a fellow sinner and fellow struggler, I want to tell you, I get it. And you know what? The psalmists get it too. That's what it is to walk in a fallen world, to have questions and to wrestle with God over hard, deep things. But Jesus' healing here illustrates to the disciples that although they might see partially, they would need to keep walking with him, keep being faithful to him, because at some point they would see clearly. Now, our progress is not the same as the disciples' progress. We live after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and they, they live through it. We live after the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and they lived through it. We live after the establishment of the church, and they were the ones that did it. So their progress is not the same as our progress. We should not gather that there is somehow in the Christian life a second blessing, a second opening of the eyes that God gives you, a sort of second miraculous touch that he does in your life. If you're saved, you're saved. But don't you experience at the very same time growth in that salvation? growth in your vision of God and God's will and God's kingdom and God's way of living right here, right now? This is exactly what Paul understood when he prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. He says that the, he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Paul's praying that for Christians, people that know Jesus, people that know they have a glorious inheritance in the saints, but he knows that they don't know it as they ought to know it. And he knows that if they continually walk with Jesus and they continually meditate on the goodness of Jesus and the gifts of Jesus, that their understanding will be enlarged. He knows that the Christian life is a walk with Jesus. It's not home base. You know when you play tag with your friends? I know a lot of you still do that. You play tag with your friends, one of the very first things you establish when you play tag is where the base is, right? Because you want to be able to trick your friends and not let them tag you. Sometimes we see Christianity as home base. I'm a Christian, I'm good. Cruise control. I'll go to church on Sundays, but if you expect me to pick up my Bible and to talk to the Lord by prayer through the week, eh, I'm on base. I don't have to do that. But notice what Psalm 119 verse 18 says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. What's the psalmist praying that God would open his eyes for? So that he would see things in the word of God. That's the Christian's prayer. That's the Christian's desire. That's the Christian's pursuit. Brothers and sisters, the plain fact of the matter is that if you are not devouring the scriptures, you're not bringing your view of God into greater focus. You're still seeing people, but they look like trees. And you'll get to heaven by God's grace because he's so much more patient and so much more kind than we are. But you won't know the fullness and the sweetness of that life here in this life. Christianity is not mysticism, as if God just sort of zaps you with the knowledge of him and and you're good to go. What do we see as we work through the gospels that discipleship is? It's a journey. It's an adventure. It's a walk with Jesus. That's the Christian life. It's not, I'm on base. I can just do anything I want now. It's let's go, Jesus. I'm yours. I'm on mission for you. Whatever you want, wherever you tell me to go, whatever you say to do, and I devour your word so that I can know the answers to the questions that I have of what he wants for me to do. And I trust that he'll work out those specifics as I discern the will of God. But I won't discern the will of God if I don't know the word of God. Christianity is a biblically rooted doctrinal discovery of God. And it's awesome. Isn't it? When he opens your eyes more and more and you see things that you didn't see before. I shared with the men's Bible study this last week an epiphany that I had from 1 Timothy thinking that that godliness is just simply striving for a set of moral principles because, honestly, I'm a legalist at heart. And then it dawned on me that as 
First Peter, First Timothy chapter three, verse 16 makes clear that the mystery of godless, godliness is not a what, the mystery of godliness is a who, Jesus Christ. And so godliness is not striving to be a better Christian. Godliness is seeing Jesus and walking with Jesus. And in doing that, guess what you'll become? A better Christian. Now you would think as a pastor, I should probably know that. But isn't that the Christian life? You walk with the Lord and you read a verse that you've read so many times and it's like, bing, oh. So when I say that Christianity is a biblically rooted doctrinal discovery of God, I mean it. And when I say it's awesome, I mean it. It's awesome. This is what the disciples were meant to see, that the blind man's problem was their problem. That the blind man's need was their need. That the blind man's progress was their pattern. And who stands at the center of all of it? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is compassionate and merciful and gracious, who does not abandon his disciples even though they don't see it but who keeps on teaching them. So, we need to understand then that our human nature blinds us to God unless we're touched by Jesus Christ to open our eyes. And that only comes through faith in him in the finished work of atonement that he accomplished on the cross, in the victorious resurrection. So let me ask you, have you embraced the reality that there is absolutely no good in you? Mama might have told you, but she's partial. There's no good in you. You're a sinner to your core. And then have you also embraced that Jesus didn't come to save good people anyway? Jesus came to save sinners. The only ones who can be saved are those who realize they're not worthy of being saved. And that's exactly the ones that Jesus loves to save. And do you walk with him? Do you have a fruitful, radiant, abiding fellowship with Jesus Christ? Because it's there. He holds it out for you. So then I leave you with the very question that Jesus asked the man. Do you see anything? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of sight. We thank you that although we are absolutely undeserving sinners, you have poured out your grace on us. In fact, that's exactly what grace means. Your goodness demonstrated toward people who deserve your wrath. Lord, we could never possibly understand all of the reasons why you are who you are, why you are so good, but we embrace it by faith. And we ask that you would continually open our eyes to the reality of who you are. Bring the Lord Jesus Christ more and more clearly into focus through the lens of his death and resurrection. Lord, we pray that your 
that, that our hearts would desire what you desire. That we would long for nothing more than your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We understand, Lord, that it's by nature that we want to naturally build our own kingdoms. We want to naturally accomplish our own will and our own purpose. We struggle so hard to submit all of those things to you. And so just as we sang earlier, we need you every hour. Help us, Lord. But we don't ask that in a hopeless way. Lord God, we know that when you hear your children say, I need you, you're there. You never leave us. You never forsake us. Forgive us for the times when we think too small thoughts of you. Enlarge our view of who you are so that we would not only live for you, but we would enjoy living for you. And we would enjoy the pursuit of knowing you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.